Welcome to Our Sixth Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. I'm Lavinia. I'm Charlotte. I'm Sally. And I'm Gemma. And we'll all be bringing you episodes. But we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies to local grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? Hi, I'm Gemma. I'm a research fellow at the Centre for Society and Mental Health. Whoa! It's a takeover. Hi, my name is Karima and I'm 17 years old and I'm a research assistant at REACH. Hi, my name is Taishi and I am 17 years old. I will be going to my second year of sixth form in September. I have worked at REACH for probably nearly two years now. I started off doing work experience and then the iPad and now I'm on a new role called the REACH Champions. My name is Adna and I'm also a research assistant at REACH and I'm 17 years old. All right, so in this episode, we're going to be exploring the impacts of social class and poverty on young people's mental health. We've chosen this topic because mental health problems are quite common among young people. Estimates suggest that between 10 and 20% of young people in the UK struggle with their mental health. And we know mental health problems are more common among young people who experience poverty or are working class. We're really interested to try to answer the following questions. What is social class? What is poverty? And how do we measure and define these things? Are young people from working class backgrounds and those who have experienced poverty or financial difficulties more likely to struggle with their mental health? And if so, why? What's the extent of the problem? And what should be done to change this? And does social media make inequalities more visible to young people? And what are the potential consequences for this for mental health? To answer the first two questions, we'll be speaking with two experts, a professor from Cambridge Uni and a researcher from Liverpool Uni. To explore the third question, we'll be joined by other young people from our YPAG, that's our Young Persons Advisory Group, to get their perspective. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Diane. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about the work you do and how you got into it? Yeah, I'm Diane Ray. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Education at University of Cambridge and Visiting Professor of Sociology at LSE. My work focuses primarily on educational inequalities across all sectors. And I first tried to tackle educational inequalities when I was much, much younger. Um, When I left school, I decided I was going to become a primary school teacher in a predominantly working class school in London because of my own difficult educational experience as a child and young woman. And I wanted to make educational experiences better for working class young people like myself. But I decided after about 20 years that I wasn't making the difference that I needed to make in order to improve these young people's educational experiences. Um, I love the kids, but the problem was that over time, 
poor educational policy made it more and more difficult for me to help them. And so I decided to research the educational system in order to understand what wasn't working for working class and black ethnic minority young people and trying to work out what was going wrong with these policies, why they were failing and what changes need to be made in order to improve both the experience of working class children and young people, but also their educational attainment levels. So first I did a a master's in human rights. And then in my mid forties, I finally decided I needed to do a PhD in sociology. And since then I've been researching and writing about educational experiences and inequalities. That sounds amazing. So we're interested to learn more about the impacts of social class and like money and poverty on like the effects that has on like young people's mental health. So to start off, could you explain what social class is? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, social class is often seen quite narrowly in terms of occupation and income. But there's a group of sociologists, including myself, who try and see it more broadly. So not just in terms of objective factors like job, income, social networks, educational level, but also in terms of more subjective factors like attitudes, how an individual views the world and their experiences of it. And in my book, Miseducation, I I write about the psychic landscape of social class, people's levels of confidence, their sense of entitlement, and feelings of belonging or not belonging in certain environments. And I I think that we need to broaden out our understandings of of social class to include these subjective aspects, as well as the objective categories that have been used for decades. All right, so my next question is, what kind of challenges do you think that working class kids face whilst growing up compared to children from other class backgrounds? Or is it like a thing of the past? Is it more fair now? It's certainly not a thing of the past. And I think, if anything, society is becoming more unfair. And certainly under COVID, it's set to become more unfair. But I I think working class children across ethnic diversity face huge disadvantages and challenges compared to the upper and middle class children. A third of children in the UK are now growing up in poverty. And that means that a majority of working class children and a majority of black, Asian, minority ethnic children are actually growing up in poverty in 2021. And a report published earlier this year shows that working class children are now on average 22.7 months behind their non-disadvantaged peers. And I always use the analogy of a race. The upper classes, they're starting the race a few metres from the finishing line. The middle classes are about 15 metres behind them. And then we have the working classes and they're way back 50 metres behind the middle classes. And then the starting gun goes off and they're all expected to get to the finishing line at the same time. It is totally unjust and very unfair. So, (laughs) But I I mean, I think there's other things as well that people don't realise that schools with predominantly working class children have less money, they have less experienced teachers, they have less qualified teachers, more supply teachers, less adequate building and infrastructure. And then on top of that, 
the upper and middle classes pay for their children to have lots of additional resources, private tuition, enrichment activities. It is such an unlevel playing field that we're doing very little to tackle. Absolutely. I really, I really like the race analogy. It really puts things into perspective, like I said. Um, no, but the next question that I have is, we've heard people talk about um, this thing called intersectionality. Can you explain what it is and whether being working class and from a racial ethnic minority background or being female gives you, how to put it, uh, more like a, at a double disadvantage in life? I, I mean, I, I don't think you can look at issues of gender, class and race without recognising intersectionality. We can't look at any aspect of identity in isolation from the others. They are all really powerfully interconnected. So race is always classed and class is always gendered. And of course, what that translates into is that being working class and from a racial ethnic minority group is a compounding of inequalities as is being female. So yes, it's really important to recognise intersectionality when we talk about social class. Do you know if young people from working class backgrounds are more likely to struggle with their mental health, either while they're young or when they get older compared to other classes? If so, do we know why this is? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research, a lot of international research, which now looks at mental health. And some current research places England 19 out of 20 countries in terms of young people's well-being. But while levels of educational well-being are generally low in England and the UK more widely, it is working class children who have lower levels of well-being than middle and upper class peers. And it's also working class children who are predominantly placed in the lowest sets in schools. And the research shows us that it's the children in the lowest sets who are suffering the most. Also, because of our preoccupation with testing and assessment, that's led to an explosion of anxiety and fear of failure in British and English school children. We have one of the most tested nations in the world. And the UK is the top of the OECD league table for children feeling very anxious about tests. But it's, again, working class children who feel the most anxiety. And working class children, but particularly those living in poverty, have far lower levels of well-being than the middle and upper class children. 47% of children in the UK do not really like going to school. I think that's shocking. And they're disproportionately working class. And in my own research, working class children across both primary and secondary school levels expressed a sense of hopelessness in relation to their schoolwork. And then if you look at what, what is a really interesting document, the World Happiness Report, you can see that there's a lack of happiness for working class children in relation to their education. That was so many great things you said here. It actually kind of links into my next question. So does the education system help young people from working class backgrounds to have similar opportunities in life as young people from other class backgrounds? And if not, in your opinion, what do you believe needs to be done to change the education system? So that no matter what ethnic group or social class you're from, you can get the same opportunity in life. Well, they definitely do not have the same opportunities. I mean, I, I do think that we have a powerful myth in the UK, which is the myth of meritocracy, that if you work hard enough, try hard enough and show that you've got enough ability, you can reach for the stars, you can be whatever you want. I think that is a really cruel myth. 
because nearly all the research shows that children's achievement, young people's achievement, is primarily down to the wealth and wishes of their parents rather than their own efforts and ability. For example, private school pupils have almost four times as much money spent on their education as a state-educated student. But also, within the state sector, middle-class children have more money spent on their education than working-class children. Boris's so-called levelling up has resulted in actually the predominantly working-class schools end up with a reduction of 1% in their funding, while the more middle-class privileged schools have had an increase of nearly 3%. You know, so much for levelling up. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think there's also, we need to look at all the private tuition, and I've done research on private tuition. I interviewed a charming young man at a very elite private boarding school. He was doing 11 GCSEs, and he had 11 tutors for each of those subjects on top of all the money his parents were paying for his schooling. So I think more, much more, not less money, should be going into working-class schools. And they should have the best teacher-to-student ratios, not the worst, which is what they've got at the moment. And also, we need, we desperately need a curriculum that speaks to Black, ethnic minority, and working-class experiences. We have an excluding, an exclusive curriculum, not an inclusive one. And, and I think that is shocking. The other thing we really need is free universal nursery education, like they have in Finland and Denmark. Currently, it is the working classes who get the worst early years provision. They get poorly funded, and, and what is primarily not education, but childcare for working class families. And, and I think that really needs to be turned around and looked at and reformed. But 50 years ago, Basil Bernstein, who was a key sociologist at the time, wrote, education cannot compensate for society. For working class children to have equal opportunities, we need wider social economic reform. We need, first of all, the eradication of poverty. We are a rich country. We don't need to have children growing up in poverty. And also, we need serious redistribution. We need to actually start to tax the rich. I was, I was so into what you were saying completely forgot yeah. this was an interview. <laughs> all right. So we all identify as working class and we've all yeah. applied to go to university, which we're really excited about. But we sometimes worry about not fitting in when we get there. How many so working class kids go to university, particularly the top universities such as Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. and does a quote unquote sense of not belonging after the mental health of young working class people in higher education? I'm afraid Oxford... They have something called Polar 4. I don't know if you know, it's low participation areas. For that scheme, my two very middle-class children would be seen as disadvantaged and priority candidates. They are not. When you actually look at social class, Oxbridge has less than 3% of working-class students. It is another shocking statistic. I've done a lot of experience with working-class students at Oxbridge. And they do have a hard time because all the focus has been on widening access and participation and far too little on protecting them when they actually get there. Support, resources, that's what they need. You've spoken about champions. The elite universities need working class champions at every level of the system. 
including at the very top reaches of staff. But they also need to put money and resources into supporting working class students. Yeah, right. No, but I, I really like the bit about intersectionality and I wanted to, I was wondering if you'd like to elaborate on that, but if you don't, we can end it there. <laughs> no, no, I mean, yes, I think there's a lot written about intersectionality, but I don't think it needs to be heavily theorised. It just needs to be recognised and understood that you can't talk about social class independently of race and gender, that actually it oversimplifies and leaves so much out. It's a way of capturing the complexity of our identities by recognising that there are multiple aspects of our identity that influence and make us who we are. And that can't just be, you know, our gender. We have to look at issues around ethnicity and class as well. Right. So when you, when you do like apply to jobs and stuff, when they don't ask you, when it isn't like when it's optional to input your nationality and your um, your sexuality, do you think that is uh, better in the long run or do you think it's better in the short term? Do you think it changes their, their role later on or do you think it doesn't really matter? You mean, does it make people discriminate or be biased against you? If you yeah, in a sense, yeah. I think it's problematic because I, I know there's a whole lot of research on surnames that shows that if you put down a surname that is not seen as typically English, then that may result in discrimination. But I mean, I I think the way to tackle that is to deal with workplace discrimination and bias and inequality. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think we've got a deeply unequal society in England and the wider UK. And I think the gaps between people are growing greater And I think when the gaps between people grow greater, then we have growing levels of mistrust and suspicion and misunderstanding and lack of understanding about those who are different from ourselves. And I really think you only have to listen to Boris Johnson to realise that he's he's making that situation worse, not better. Um, Diane would love to thank you for your time and for this really interesting chat that we don't really have with lots of people it's very uncommon which it shouldn't be at all but it's been a really great chat okay lovely to speak to all three of you thank you <laughs> all the best she was so cool yeah Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us, Sophie. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about the work you do and how you got into it? So hi, I'm Sophie. I'm um, a Wealth and Trust Research Fellow and I work in the Department of Public Health Policy and Systems. It's just changed its name at the University of Liverpool. And I'm part of a team that's called the Health Inequalities Research Team. And we research the effects of welfare reform, and poverty on different aspects of health and health inequalities in the UK. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. So in this episode, we're exploring the impacts of social class and poverty on young people's mental health. We've had a chat with Professor Diane Ray about social class already. Can you tell us about 
what poverty is and how we measure it? I think poverty means different things to different people. But in general, I would define poverty as a lack of resources. So a lot of things that we need to live a healthy life and to live a happy life. So this is things that you need to meet the basic needs to live. So I'm talking about food, heating, a house, uh, transport, clothing. But it's not just having those things. It's about having access to those things. So how far do you have to go to get food? How What is your house like? Is it damp? Is it, you know, what exposures are around you? Do you have access to green spaces somewhere that you can, you know, run around? Do you have time to do those things? And for kids as well, there's extra costs of obviously like school equipment, um, school trips, and then holidays for the family, things that you're going to need as a family to, you know, have some rest all of which I think most people would want for themselves and want for their friends and family to live. How it's measured is a bit complex. Some measures are just are about income. This can be income, what they call either before and after housing costs, so after the costs of having your house, so rent or mortgage. And some other measures include more material essentials that people might need for a decent standard of living. So that's about having those warm clothes and having access to holidays and stuff like that and food. But in general, in the UK, how we talk about it is we're talking about income poverty, and that can be measured in absolute terms or relative terms. Basically, once you decide on what you need to be in, like what you consider as the poverty line, it's then about whether you're measuring that in relative terms or in absolute terms. But then there's other measures like the UK has something called the index of multiple deprivation. And that includes things that are based on income, employment, education, health, crime, barriers to housing and services and living environments. So they're sort of trying to encapsulate a lot of different things, but that you can't say that about individuals, that's more about of an area. So we can say that an area is deprived if it has high levels of unemployment, lots of crime in that area, that that kind of thing. And then the income poverty is more on an individual level. So you can say people are living in income poverty. How much does poverty influence young people's mental health and why? Like, for example, if you don't have like the same material goods as other people at school. Yeah, it's a huge influence on mental health. So work that we've done before, you could say that a child is between two to four times as likely to have mental health difficulties as a result of being in poverty. But I think it's not just having an impact on mental health. It's having an impact on all health and not just on children. As those children become adults, it has an impact across what we call the life course. So any exposure of poverty, so some work that I've done previously shows that just a single exposure of poverty is detrimental to somebody's mental health, a child's mental health. And then the longer you're exposed to poverty, the worse it gets. And that sort of makes sense because of the aspects that we're talking about, how we're defining poverty, not having an appropriate income to have the right food, if you're malnourished, things like that can have obviously quite a bad effect and we know that a child that is born in the most disadvantaged 10% of areas in the UK and that's by that measure of IMD that I talked about before can expect to live 10 years fewer than a child born in the most deprived areas and that rises to 20 years if we think about life lived in good health so it has a huge impact we often talk about Liverpool where I live and work so a child born in Kensington and Liverpool can expect to live 10 fewer years than a child born in Kensington and London that's very affluent And that rises to 20 years if you think about life lived in good health. So it it goes far beyond 
mental health, although mental health is obviously a really important thing. And I mean, recently there's been loads of reports of infant mortality. So rates going up in more deprived areas. So kids dying before they turn one in more deprived areas. And it's because there are things about poverty that are detrimental to how we live. Well, some of these statistics are very mind-blowing. Um, I know you briefly explained and talked about this before, but my next question is, what is the difference between absolute poverty and relative poverty, and which has the biggest impact on mental health? So usually I talk about relative poverty. So that's relative to the people in your community, in your city, in your local authority, in your country. And in general, the poverty line that I talked about earlier is that 60% below the median income is what is generally accepted as living in relative poverty. So we're, we're assessing this line at 60%. People below it are considered in poverty and people above it are living above the poverty threshold. This can be difficult because it's basically having a cutoff so the people that are around that poverty line are sort of at risk constantly of sort of dipping in and in and out and sometimes worse affected but in practical terms living of an income that's 60 percent below the median incomes means that many families are struggling to meet basic needs so that's going back to things like food heating transport access to transport clothes, warm clothes, and then those extra costs for schooling that children and young people need for school trips and food and equipment. And in contrast, absolute poverty is a static measure. So it's fixed at one level. So somebody at some point has decided that there is one measure for absolute poverty. And it doesn't change depending on if things get better or worse in absolute terms. So if if your country becomes less or more prosperous, that static doesn't change. So in absolute terms, things can be worse off, for example, if the country is doing worse. So like what you, the value of your pound doesn't go as far as it did previously. But in relative terms, they can fluctuate with that. My next question is, how many kids live in poverty in this country? And are some groups more likely to experience poverty than others? Are the numbers approving over time? And has COVID had an impact? Yeah, there's a there's a lot in that question. So, yeah. so there isn't any data yet with what's happening with the COVID pandemic. That's not coming out yet. But undoubtedly, it's had a huge impact on poverty. There's lots of anecdotal reports and reports from charities talking about the increase of homelessness and you know loss of jobs which is going to have an impact on child poverty all of these other things despair use of food banks you know that kind of thing but just before the pandemic so in 2019 there were around 4.3 million children living in poverty what's important to know about that number is that 75 percent are living in households where somebody is working and that is what is often missed because the narrative from central government is that the root out of poverty is moving people into work but the vast majority of people are living in households where somebody is working so work isn't paying children living in larger families are at far greater risk of living in poverty a reason that that might be is because of changes to government policies around larger families so there's something called the two-child limit. I don't know whether you've heard of that. So restricting child-related benefits to just the first two children. So making the income of larger households go down, which means people are going to be in more poverty. So lone parent families are more affected. There's around 50% of children that are living in lone parent uh, families are living in poverty. And then about 46% of black and minority ethnic groups are more likely to be living in poverty compared to just 20 26% of children in white British families. 
child poverty was reducing up until 2010 and since 2010 it's been increasing rapidly and I've got lots of things to say about why why that's the case but Covid will have amplified the situation that we were in in 2019 so where we had 4.3 million children living in poverty in 2019 as a direct result of austerity policies that have happened in some ways there are some things that have occurred that should help children that are living in poverty so they've had things like the 20 pounds uplift to some benefits that's these are all temporary measures that are going to go and i think there's estimates that removing that 20 pounds a week uplift to universal credit and working cats credit is going to push something like it's either 500,000 or 700,000 more more families and children into poverty so it's had a yeah it's having a huge impact All right, the next question is why allow so many kids or anyone for that matter to live in poverty? What could be done to end it and why hasn't it been done yet? Yeah, this is the one that keeps me up at night. Um in some ways I think it's a bit like the climate crisis in that it's just been allowed to continue and it's being ignored and there's a lot of lip service that is paid to it without anything actually being done. And if you think about how people that are living in poverty are portrayed in the media, I think that has a lot to do with it. So it's very stigmatizing and there's been a narrative of a blame game and government has shifted its focus towards unemployment and family breakdown instead of targeting child poverty itself. So I guess in short, it's a huge problem and there's a huge problem with work and what we consider work to be so we zero hour contracts temporary contracts uh, low paid work and if you think about within covid what work has been absolutely important and who we've considered as frontline workers they're the lowest paid in our society there is something absolutely fundamentally wrong with us that that is how we're valuing people and if you look at the statistics again on the number of children that are living in poverty they're in households where somebody is working so there is something fundamentally wrong with how we've defined work that is causing some of the problem i think the second big thing is that we have an inadequate social security system to properly support people when we need it and that's i think there's a narrative that there's a certain group of people that will need it and the rest of us won't and that's just not the case i know that i am one paycheck away from being at risk of being homeless and i think it's about ensuring that the people who are making these decisions are aware there has been a narrative of the them and us that needs to be eroded so i guess a longer answer would be that the system is not set up for those facing poverty so historically there are things that have worked so things that we know have reduced poverty so under new labor back in 1999 Tony Blair's government then um, had a commitment to eradicate child poverty by 2020 and that was mainly by including getting people into work but largely it was through a progressive tax and benefit system that was advantageous for larger families I should say in comparison to like EU countries the stuff that they're doing for larger families is incredible it seems like the bigger your family are the better it is in other countries but we seem to have gone the other way in the UK so we have the child poverty act that was passed in 2010 that enshrined in law a cross party promise to eradicate child poverty and although i don't think they managed to half child poverty by 2010 like it was going way down and then in 2011 we see this reversal in child poverty trends sort of start to go up again Uh, and in some part this is attributable to the austerity policies so things like the benefit cap benefit freeze the introduction of universal credit the two child policy limit all of these other things have been a shifting away from being a children focused environment and in 2011 they decided to change the narrative away from child poverty and towards unemployment and family breakdown 
And they decided that the route out of poverty was by enabling more parents into work, enabling them to earn more so that they wouldn't be demanding of the social security system. I think there's other problems with it, but in general, they're the, the main ones. The child poverty targets have been removed now and how they define child poverty is is different. They also took away, so before 2016, the relative poverty measures were published and talked about. Now they're just published but not talked about in Parliament. So there's lots of things that are happening. These are the reasons why we're seeing this huge, you know, 4.3 million children living in poverty. The welfare system is not sufficient to support people facing adversity. It's not sufficient for children that are living in poverty. We had Philip Alston here in 2018, uh, who was the UN Rapporteur for Child Poverty, who said poverty is political choice. And he talked about those that were hit hardest because of it. And he talked about austerity falling disproportionately upon the poor, women, racial and ethnic minorities, children, single parents and people with disabilities. He said the changes to taxes and benefits since 2010 have been highly regressive and the policies have taken the highest toll on those least able to bear it. The government says everyone's hard work has paid off, but according to Equalities and Human Rights Commission, while the bottom 20% of earners will have lost on average 10% of their income, by 2021, as a result of these changes, top earners have actually come out ahead. So we're seeing these inequalities, they're just getting bigger. I think beyond that, all of that hell, children and younger people's voices, they're not heard in the national debate. And potentially that's because children and young people aren't voters. Right. So the narrative of children and young people is, is ignored to some extent. So <laughs> it's bleak. It's bleak. Sorry. <laughs> right. So if we ended poverty in this country and everyone had enough money, how big an impact would this have on young people's mental health? Would it make much difference or are other things like social media, bullying and exams, for example, too important? Definitely everything is important, but I do think it's going to have a huge impact. So we know um, that more equal societies do better in all areas of health and well-being. So by lifting people out of poverty and I would say dampening down the rich to poor ratio because it's at a ridiculous level at the moment would have a huge impact on mental health so I think this is adults and not children but I've previous works that I've done that's looked at the impact of universal credit on adults mental health we found that something like 64,000 people's mental health of unemployed people was detrimental as a result of moving on to universal credit. Of that, something like 21,000 would reach clinical levels of depression or anxiety. So that, that's what could be taken away if, if universal credit hadn't existed. So that's like one aspect of the welfare system that is probably, you know, is causing poverty. But it'll have an impact not just on mental health, it'll have an impact across all of those other outcomes that I talked about before. So physical health, obesity, there's just everything, everything that's horrible, mortality. Our mortality will be different and better if we eradicated poverty. And there's been some fab research out there that has shown the benefits of improving household income. So looking at the sort of other effects. So by giving families more money and that's not means tested, so it's literally you're getting this benefit for living in this area, say, has improved not just children's mental health, but the whole family's mental health. There's less arguments in the family as, you know, income isn't as big a demand. There's less arguments between people and behaviour improves across across the board. So I do think social media, I've not, I didn't grow up in a social media environment, but I do see the stress that a social media environment has 
on children and young people and how bullying isn't just in the school anymore. It can expand to those areas and stress of exams. All of those things are so important to mental health. But I think not being in poverty and sort of the resilience is important. And I think getting out of poverty can make people more resilient and so have better health, health outcomes, being able to deal with bullies in a different way. But also bullying occurs. I mean, some of bullying occurs because people are living in poverty, right? So removing that factor would have a huge impact as well. Yeah, the material differences between yeah. people. Yeah. Um, earlier you mentioned um, about voting and we're all under the age of 18, we're all 17, I think. <laughs> so um, we're too young to vote. But it seems totally unfair that we aren't allowed to vote on issues like this that have such a massive impact on so many young people is there anything people our age can do to try and make a difference hmm, yes I think so I mean the best thing that we can try and do is to make your voices heard so that is the one thing that is being excluded from the narrative so contacting your local MPs and sharing what you know and what you've experienced and what you've witnessed from your perspective but you know backed up by some of the things that I'm talking about backed up by the evidence they can't ignore you and they should respond to you. Having petitions, you know, like the climate crisis, you know, things like that where you're gathering lots of young people together, talking to adults in your life, absolutely important to, to share, you know, to teach and to give them knowledge for what is happening and what you're witnessing and what you know from the research and the evidence. And you can spread that word and, you know, maybe affect other people's voting choices until you're able to vote. It's, I think it is unfair that, you know, that we're not lowering the voting age to 16. And again, that would probably be about advocating for things like that. Do you know what I mean? Like trying to get your, trying to get the vote reduced to, to 16 for all of these reasons. I mean, there's so many things that you can do at 16. It seems silly. It seems like this is a, a scene that this is the one thing that 17 and 16 year olds can't do and can't engage with. But so much of your life is affected by Brexit. You know, all of these policy changes. It's yeah, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Brexit has affected us a lot. So yeah, I see why it came to your mind first. <laughs> I know for sure I definitely will be doing some of the things you listed on that list to make a difference mm. but that's all of our questions done so we want to thank you for your time and thank you for such an interesting chat thank you so much thank it's you okay I hope it was okay I would say if you do like don't give up hope I think that's the one thing if you are passionate about it don't give up hope like I've I have presented some of this stuff to to parliament they have a like the DWP who do all those benefits stuff they've got a select committee and but there's always inquiries into like stuff and they recently had one on inquiries into child poverty they'll accept evidence from everybody so I, I I don't think it should stop people because you're not an academic to put in evidence and the if you're experiencing or if you know people or if you've seen things or mm. even what you're witnessing through school like put that evidence in definitely Hi guys, we're here today with our YPAC and two special guests, Alicia and Amina. And we're going to be discussing, does social media make inequalities more visible to young people? And what are the potential consequences of that, positive and negative? So we just had a couple of questions that we want to throw out to get this discussion going. So first, we want to ask, do you guys think that social media reinforces social differences in any way? 
I believe it does. I believe it has a big impact. I believe that it can make people feel isolated and like they're different to everyone else and that cause many problems. That's on the negative side. On the positive side, it can also make people realise the advantage other people have and make them push even harder to get that far and it motivates them. So yeah, that's my two opinions. I think that social media has a lot of negatives because I feel like it highlights social difference a lot more, especially like if you see a lot of, let's say people your age who have loads of material things and you might look at yourself and think, oh, I don't have that. It might make you feel like you're less than or that you're not as good as them. Because I feel like when you're young, a lot of things are based on what you have or what you look like. I agree. It's the thing where social media reinforces all the negatives, for example, the things that they post, this idea of like a hustle culture and like feeding into capitalism and you need to do this and you need to work these many hours or you're not worth anything. Because at the end, of, I've heard so many things lately of people saying if your parents still give you money or if your parents still pay for like your phone bill, you're not really doing well. And I just mm. think it's very silly because at the end of the day we're not adults like we're not adults in the sense where we're paying bills or we have to do all this that the other we're still children and our parents are just doing their job and yeah. I feel like it just feeds more into you have to be just like everyone else when in reality everyone has their own time to mm-hmm. do stuff yeah yeah I agree we're still very young and the perception that we need to be making like a thousand pounds or if we're not we're not good like it's very I feel like it's very damaging as well because I think I've seen a lot of things where people are like oh if you're not making money what are you doing like we're still young and education needs to be like put first before anything else it's not even that it's not even in the sense where education has to be put first because education is not for everyone in all honesty but it's a thing where make what is this making money that everyone's so struck on it's not something that we're not at the age where you should be having a nine to five and working like 60 hours a week we're still children we really need to enjoy our youth and I feel like because of this idea that especially capitalism has put in everyone's head of if you're not doing this or if you're not doing that you're less than I just think it's ridiculous in my opinion Mm -hmm. however I think when it comes to social media that aspect is extremely negative and it causes people to as I said feel less than however it does bring people together I feel like there's so many platforms where you can find people that have the same experiences as you or feel the same thing that you feel and it can make you feel appreciated and it can make you feel less Mm -hmm. alone however Mm -hmm. I feel like overall social media reinforces negatives rather than it does positives it could be seen as a platform to enforce positive vibes and good things however I just don't think it's doing it I totally agree like I remember having this conversation with one of my friends the other day and they were so upset like stressed out that they didn't have the job like that was their main like worry and I feel like because of social media's pressure of having a job it makes it even harder for people our age only 17 to be stressed about not having a job because mm. they're going to be seen horrible in society they're going to see like oh you're weird you're this in society and that should not be the case but as you said there are still some positive i think social media is majority negative but there is still some positive or social media for example 
there is people like you that have the same impact so you feel like you are part of society but yeah I do agree the stress of yeah. having a job in society and in social media is just very very bad and it's plus like social media it talks I feel like so many people talk about like mental health awareness and bringing it to be we should talk about this like normalize this and normalize that however Mm. when it comes to like when they see people going through the parts of mental health that aren't romanticized they're quite disgusted they're a bit like oh what the hell like this isn't something that you should be doing or I don't understand or just ignorance in all honesty and it's a thing where it's like however you romanticize all the aspects of mental health that you like or you think are funny or you want to use as dark humor however when you see someone going through something that isn't what you romanticize you don't like it and yeah I feel like that whole thing of romanticizing the bits of for example eating disorders or depression like everyone's saying just because they're a bit sad that they're depressed or because they haven't eaten for a couple hours because they've been busy is them having an eating disorder all these different things that they don't completely understand and they just throw it around because they learn the word yeah yeah it's a thing where when they do learn what what it actually entails to have those disorders and those um mental health issues they don't really like the parts that aren't appealing if you know what I mean and I really I really like that you pointed that out because with the way social media is structured these days, it's a bit about what norms and values they they show up on there that people think are romanticized, as you said. And honestly, I feel like whenever you put those things in real life, it's not acceptable, is it? Mm-mm. So would you say that norms and values are created on social media that govern what is acceptable in real life? When it comes to um, norms and values, some of them are not just behavioural. Because we're talking about are trends and like things you can change. Other times it will be material things. So suddenly if you don't have the new Nikes that everyone is wearing, you are less mm-hmm. than everyone else. It, it separates the haves and the have-nots. And even if you are someone who comes from a lower-class background and you love those shoes that everyone is wearing, suddenly your opinion doesn't matter because you don't have what everyone is talking about. And that, that yeah. is what really separates social media's influence and what norms of values it teaches because it's not a matter of just behaviour. It's about whether you can afford certain things, which brings us back to social yeah. discussion. Definitely. And straining, for example, like kids like asking their parents or like begging their parents for this specific thing. Like it's mm-hmm. just the thing, material things, as you said, Adna, that mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need, but it's a thing where you also do need it at the same time in order mm-hmm. to fit in. And if you don't fit in, you're just seen as an outcast. And I feel like we all know how evil kids can be and how detrimental it can be to someone's mental health. I actually, right right now, I'm doing a social media cleanse right now. And I feel like it's because of the pressure. Like, even things you see, and like, going back on the last point, like, seeing other people's life, you're like, we're the same age and I'm not like at that stage in my life yet so how come you are and the, that questions always come up and that can lead to very like many mental health issues like you said people losing their life because they feel like they're not good enough so I agree mm-hmm. that I believe that social media is much more negative than it is positive the only positive you might get out of it you can learn things but I feel like the negative impact social media has on many people is just so bad like you feel like you have to put on facade to impress other people and I don't feel like we should be able to do that just for social media like no yeah yeah I'm just thinking back to um the conversation that we had earlier in the podcast and I just had a question for you guys when it comes to that how aware do you think people are about the gap 
in like between the rich and poor nowadays because of social media do you think there's more awareness around that or do you think that actually people are not so aware not so aware personally I think I'm not so aware especially because of like what the area you live in like the certain mm-hmm. demographic I wouldn't see like unless I go to a certain area I wouldn't see like really rich people mm-hmm. I'll just see people who are like me in a certain way mm-hmm. definitely I've- the people that you um follow or it's the people that you obviously like and people you like are normally people like you so I think it's very yeah. hard to see people that are from a different background from a different society so only if you like for me I only get to see different dynamic I go to school so far if that makes sense my six months so far so if I didn't go mm-hmm. to six months so far I wouldn't be able to see other people's lifestyle I wouldn't be able to see the different dynamics so I think social media doesn't help in that sense I feel like you're more likely going to gravitate to people more like you and then that's going to be your feed etc etc so I don't think social media helps to see the big gap between the rich and the poor or yeah the dynamics I agree also um with social media I feel like especially when it comes to like the working class or things that the working class do that are how do I explain it like something that the rich like about the working class I feel like everyone's trying to be similar in a sense so it's like sometimes you can't tell unless you're in the specific area or you're around those specific people for example I work I work in a place that's mostly rich people or mostly people with money and then you kind of notice the differences even with the way you speak you notice that there's Mm -hmm. so many differences and I feel like they don't quite get that we're different and I Mm -hmm. get that we're different because we're different but I feel like they don't get it either if that makes sense yeah no not everybody especially when you're at the upper side looking down you don't really know what other social classes go through but being those social classes you see the difference the disparity because you know what you're living and that they're not living the same way you are I also feel like people from maybe higher classes, they romanticise being, like, yep. working class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Because I feel like it's seen as some sort of trend, sadly, yeah, yeah. that you sh- when you're working class, is this, that, the other. Or In all honesty, I feel like they affiliate working class to being Black or POC, in all honesty. And... Because of that, when it comes to, like, the cultures within, like, the Black community, when they like something about it, they just assume it's working class rather mm-hmm. than just simply being a culture. Mm-hmm. Right, you guys, just to, just to, like, wrap it all up, what do, you, what do you guys think? Any more questions or anything you want to discuss before we wrap this up? No, I think that was really uh, well. It's been I lovely have... speaking to all of you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Your hosts were Agna, Karima and Taishi. This is Young Persons Takeover. You've been listening to Our Six Society. Production support was provided by Verity Buckley and Sally Marlowe. The producer was Buddy Peace. Our Six Society is funded by King's College London's ESRC Impact Acceleration Account.